0: Welcome to the Well-Balanced 360 podcast, where we dive into the latest and best tips on medicine and spirituality to help you master your health and overcome your fears so that you can feel your absolute best. I'm your host, Dr. Shivani, a licensed medical doctor, a yoga nerd, and a wellness enthusiast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. Now let's dive in. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Patel, who's a double board certified gastroenterologist practicing in Southern California. We discuss how to keep your gut microbiome healthy and what your poop should look like. Thank you, Dr. Patel, for joining me today. I'm so excited and honored to have you on. I would love for you to start by sharing your journey of how you became a GI doctor.
1: Oh, yeah. So I did my internal medicine training in New York, and I was at NYU Winthrop Hospital. And then I came to University of Illinois, Chicago for my GI fellowship. I couples matched with my husband who did cardiology. And I really developed my interest for GI a long time ago when I was in medical school watching other doctors perform these procedures where they get to do therapeutic things like take out polyps or stop GI bleeds. But then I would also go with them and shadow them in their clinic and realize that they were helping people with very similar symptoms to what I've had. I've experienced bloating and distension, and I've seen people have had friends who've had IBS symptoms. And I realized that there was so much going on in the whole GI tract, whether it was swallowing disorders or pooping disorders or whatever have you, I realized that there's so much pathology. And so I became very interested in GI. I did a lot of research in there. Specifically in motility and just how the body works in terms of swallowing and pooping. And I realized as I did all of that that it's very understudied. And so I knew I had to do a fellowship in it and become trained so that I could help others. And so in fellowship, I decided to become a not only a gastroenterologist who does the screening colonoscopies, but someone who concentrated on functional GI disorders and Motility disorders, specifically on how people swallow. So, things like achalasia, but also things called disorders of gut brain interaction, just because so many people have this and it's not necessarily talked about very often. And that's how I realized I need to do something about it and become someone that they can go to to have this taken care of. So, hence, that was my journey. I did a special month at Washington University in St. Louis through the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society to become specially trained in both the swallowing disorders as well as defecatory disorders. And with that, I feel like I've gained a lot of skills to be able to help my patients suffering through these disorders.
0: And you mentioned the gut-brain axis, which I'll get to in a second, but can you explain what is the gut microbiome? What are we talking about (laughs) when we say
1: this? (laughs) Yeah, no. I used to wonder the same thing, and I was the doctor, so I can't imagine not being one and hearing those words. So the gut microbiome is really the collection of the bacteria and the organisms that are in our GI tract, and they are basically the facilitators of the predominant things that happen in our gut and in the rest of our body, whether it's how we move our gut, how we regulate our mood, and many other things. You mentioned the gut-brain axis previously. What exactly is that? Yeah. So to understand really the gut-brain axis, it's important to really understand disorders of gut-brain interaction, okay? So basically, like we said, the gut microbiome is these microorganisms, okay, with different types of bacteria. They influence how the brain functions and they interact with the brain, which is the central nervous system, the CNS. Bidirectionally, which means the brain gives feedback to the gut and the gut gives feedback to the brain. And they use the vagus nerve, which is one of the primary cranial nerves to modulate how we feel in terms of happiness, our reward system, how we metabolize, how we deal with fat, how we become insulin resistant, how we deal with obesity. Because what they do is they actually, these bacteria, can synthesize what we call neurotransmitters, okay? Neurotransmitters are these little things like serotonin, dopamine. You hear these words oftentimes in mood medications, GABA, norepinephrine. These are actually produced by these microorganisms, these bacteria. And that bacteria also produce something called short chain fatty acids. So these go back and modulate how we actually move our gut, how we actually have our moods and how we process and metabolize fat. That's incredible.
0: And isn't that why they say if you're like anxious or you're feeling certain emotions to just take deep breaths because of the vagus nerve and that connection
1: between the gut and brain? Absolutely. A lot of things that we think about in terms of mood and anxiety, it's bidirectional. So not just one way, it's not just eating and controlling the bacteria that helps with how the nerves feel it's the other way around as well so being a calmer person and kind of modulating and mitigating your anxiety will blunt quote unquote those nerves such that the body has a chance to let the good bacteria sit there and form those needed metabolites so that you can have a healthy body
0: that's incredible there's so much out there about probiotics right So what's the difference between prebiotic and probiotic? A very good question. So
1: a prebiotic is just the foods that you would eat to help feed a probiotic. And probiotics are just the actual bacteria themselves that are in our gut that need to populate in order to maintain a healthy GI tract. So prebiotics are the foods and the probiotics are the bacteria themselves. And what's an
0: easy way to find out like what would work for your particular gut microbiome, right? Because we're all different. So is the easiest way, and I know there's like gut and stool tests out there. Like, what do you recommend as a GI doctor?
1: I would always say go
0: to a physician, but.
1: Yes, that's one huge thing is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's some truth to everything, but then people take it tangentially and There's people out there making supplements of their own sorts and saying, oh yeah, this is associated with so-and-so. And so the biggest thing is one, established with a physician and particularly with a gastroenterologist, we all have different microbiomes and it's not one that we can really map out. Unlike the human genome, which we have been able to map out, the human microbiome for each person has not been mapped out. And it's something that changes all the time based on what you eat, based on your mood, based on, let's say, if you had antibiotic use or you had an infection, okay? So let's say you went on a trip to Mexico or you went on a cruise and you had a small infection, that introduction of that bacteria can also change the overall gut microbiome that you have. And so it's an ever evolving thing. And it's not one of those things that you can really map out and say, okay, I have 50% 50% bacterioides bacteria and 10% of firmicutes bacteria. It's one of those things you can't really make out a map and say this is what you have. You just have to know that these are the bacteria and a dysbiosis, which means an abnormality in one in comparison to the other, can lead to abnormal gut function and changes in your overall well being.
0: I've noticed there's been a lot of acid reflux on the rise. I mean, my brother, he just turned 30, but he called me not too long ago and actually my parents did. And they were like, he's having a heart attack. And I'm like, I'm sure that's not it. He ended up going (laughs) to ER and they diagnosed him with GERD. So I guess my question is, as this is becoming more and more prevalent in our society, are there lifestyle changes, especially for younger people, that we can do when you're kind of diagnosed with something like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's the other thing. GERD is one of those things that if not properly diagnosed, you can even get misdiagnosed because GERD, which is an actual pathological condition, which by the way, for anyone who's listening, it stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. So that means that you have an abnormal amount of acid coming up from your stomach into your esophagus, which is your food pipe, and causing damage. And pathological GERD, which means that it's actually causing damage, is one where you have destruction to the lining of the food pipe, okay, which means that the actual food pipe lining is being damaged. You've got something called a stricture, which is a narrowing of the food pipe because your body's trying to ward off the excess acids that it's feeling, or it's actually experienced something called Barrett's esophagus, which means that the lining of the esophagus has already changed, okay? If you have one of those three things, that is actually called pathological GERD. And so not everyone actually has pathological GERD. They might just have heartburn where they feel every single time that the acid goes up from their stomach into their food pipe and they feel that burning sensation, that is just heartburn. They might not actually have pathological GERD themselves. And so there is a way to figure out whether or not the heartburn that you're feeling is actually too much acid coming up into your food pipe? Or is it the nerves in the food pipe that are feeling the regular amounts of acid that go up and down in order to digest food? Or is it just an abnormal amount that needs to be calmed down? So there are ways to kind of look for that. And one is to see a gastroenterologist who can perform a test called an endoscopy where we use a camera and go into the food pipe to look for those three things I was talking about. They look to see if there are strictures. They look to see if there's damage in the food pipe called esophagitis. And then they look to see if there's something called Barrett's esophagus. Now, even if those three things don't exist, they can use something called a Bravo test, which is a little capsule that can actually measure the amount of acid that you're actually experiencing. So we can actually quantify and see, are you experiencing a lot of actual acid reflux, or is your heartburn coming from the fact that your nerves are just on overdrive and hypersensitive? And it's very important to differentiate because the treatment is different. And so it's very important to see someone who specializes in this and specifically a gastroenterologist would be a good person.
0: Can emotions such as fear and anxiety around food products? Mimic food sensitivities, even if it's not really like a food sensitivity.
1: Absolutely. I see this all the time. So, people so many times get convinced that they are gluten sensitive, or they say that they have an allergy to it. And the thing is, if you don't have actual something called celiac disease, where you have an antibody that's attacking the lining of the small intestine. Preventing the absorption of gluten, you don't need to avoid it. Okay. You may have a sensitivity to those foods, which can cause you to have bloating and distension and make you feel like you're really stuffed up. And that's because you're having a reaction to a non absorbed carbohydrate called fructan. It's not the gluten that you're reacting to, it's a non digestible sugar. Again, same thing, just like when you eat asparagus and broccoli they have these non-digestible sugars in there like raffinose and those just like regular table sugar can cause you to bloat and absorbs water and makes you feel bloated and so people think that by avoiding this forever that they're doing themselves a favor because they're like okay well now I'm not going to eat anything that causes me to bloat and I have an allergy quote unquote to it when they don't they don't need to avoid gluten if they truly don't have celiac disease And they don't need to be avoiding fruits and veggies that are excellent for you because they provide such a great source of fiber. Because what they're reacting to is that non absorbable carbohydrate called fructan. And that goes away in just a few short hours. So if they truly feel that they have a disease where they are allergic to it, they should really see an allergist and immunologist and have IgE testing. Okay. That actually looks to see if the immune system is creating a response to certain foods and actually causing there to be an allergic reaction, not a sensitivity reaction, sure. I mean, we all get bloated a little bit when we drink milk or whatever else. That's called lactose intolerance. But are we having an anaphylactic reaction? Am I breaking out in hives? Is my throat closing after drinking milk? No. So there's a big difference. And speaking to a professional who can help you differentiate that, very important.
0: There is in the wellness world. A lot of people are going dairy free, gluten free without actually knowing what's going on. And there are people with eating disorders. So they start restricting foods. Can that lead to more
1: imbalances if you do that long-term? Oh, absolutely. A lot of people read on the internet or where have you, about the low FODMAP diet. And for those who are listening, a low FODMAP diet stands for fermentable oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols, okay? Fancy acronym, but basically those are the fermentable sugars that are found in a lot of foods, specifically fruits and vegetables. And these fermentable sugars can cause bloating and distension. And so being on a low FODMAP diet it is said to help initially just for about a period of two to six weeks, identify triggers that cause you to bloat. It is not recommended for this to be a lifelong way to live because I see a lot of people who come to my clinic and they're like, I've been low FODMAP for the last year. And basically, all I eat is lettuce and water. And I'm like, well, that's not good for you either, right? You are not getting any diversity in your diet and poor thing, you're eating nothing. So these food fears become so restrictive that they're literally surviving on barely any nutrition. Forget the taste of it all. I mean, I would miss eating real foods just because they think that the low FODMAP diet needs to be their lifelong journey. And it is not meant to be that. It's meant to be no more than two to six weeks And then you're supposed to slowly reintroduce these foods back in because a lot of the high FODMAP foods are also rich in fiber. And fiber is the primary thing that you should be concentrating on for your overall gut health and life health. But yeah, low FODMAP diet and these fad diets are not meant to be lifelong. So having an aversion or fear of having these should really be discussed and try to avoid
0: you brought up fiber. So what are some foods that are high in fiber and how can we incorporate different varieties of that in our daily intake?
1: Yeah. So soluble fiber is what you really want to be having rather than insoluble fibers. Well, insoluble fibers you should also have, but soluble fibers are ones where basically they're found in things like psyllium, oat bran, barley, beans, oats, Those are ones that they basically form a gel when they're absorbed in the GI tract and they can actually slow down digestion, prevent as much glucose metabolism and insulin resistance. They help with that. And that can actually help in terms of helping you feel full. Okay. So soluble fiber, that's huge. And especially that helps in people who have constipation. Insoluble fiber is found in things like wheat bran and a lot of veggies, like asparagus and broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those kind of have the laxative effect. Okay. And so people don't really know the difference and kind of just eat one type and they're like, well, I can't have it. Yeah. So there's different types. Even chia seeds, for example, is a great insoluble fiber. So it's great to eat that because it can help you feel full. It can help with overall colon health. And that is what you're looking for. Okay. And if you're looking to help some with constipation, you can have things like the insoluble fibers that are found in the wheat bran, the whole grains, and the veggies. And remember, if you have just the insoluble fibers, you can get aggravating symptoms of the bloating and the farting and things like that. And so the American College of Gastroenterology actually recommends that you have soluble fibers rather than insoluble fibers for your IBS symptoms, okay? There is a distinguishing factor among them. And it's important to remember what happens with each. So soluble fiber is going to form a gel, help with digestion. Insoluble fibers is not going to form that gel. It's just going to move things through your colon and make you poop.
0: So I'm going to go into a less hot topic, poop. (laughs) It's not talked about a lot, but it should be. People should know. How many times per
1: day is it normal to go? And what are they supposed to look like? Okay, so that's very good to ask. Normal bowel habits is really dependent on the person. And even the societies define it as anywhere from once every three days to up to three times a day. And for some people, having it once every three days can almost seem like it's constipation. Whereas having it three times a day can seem like diarrhea. But technically, those are the parameters of normal. So anything that's outside of what is normal for that individual person is what's considered abnormality, okay? Not just the frequency, but what the poop actually looks like is far more important. You can always Google something called a Bristol stool chart. And this thing is hanging in my office if any of you follow me on Instagram, you know I've put up the Bristol stool chart before. And if you're my patient, you know that I probably described this to you. So we'll just quickly go over it. Okay. So, looking at your poop, when you have something called a type one poop, it looks like these small pebbles or what I call milk duds. Okay. I like to describe things as foods because then you have an association. So, type one milk duds are these hard, separate lumps that look like little nuts or milk duds that's constipation they're hard they don't have enough water absorbed in there that's constipation type two is more like in between a milk dud and a babe ruth bar okay it's when the milk duds all got stuck together and they have a little bit more water making them stuck in there so it's like when your milk duds have been little old and sitting in that little box and you take them out and they're all stuck together that's type two okay Type three and four, now you're getting somewhere. That's what your goals are. It look like a Babe Ruth bar or a smooth Snickers bar, okay? I know you're never going to eat these chocolates ever again, which is probably a good thing because it has a lot of sugar, but a Babe Ruth bar and a Snickers bar, you want it to look like a sausage that is detached, but solid, and it's going to come out and it's got little cracks on the surface, but it's smooth, okay? It doesn't hurt when it comes out, Okay. So that's your goal for it to look like a Babe Ruth bar or a smooth Snickers bar. Again, if you come to my office, I'm going to tell you, does it look like a milk dud or does it look like a Snickers bar? And people immediately associate and they say, oh yeah, it's looking like milk duds. And I'm like, ah, you're constipated. Now, what happens if it gets looser? Let's say it's like little blocks, okay? That's type five where the Snickers kind of melted off. And now it's just in smaller pieces, blobs. That's type five. You're getting closer to diarrhea. Type six and seven, it just makes it look like chocolate mush or chocolate oatmeal. Type seven is completely just dirty chocolate water. Okay. So now you have an idea of what the Bristol stool chart is. The goal is to be a type three to four, which is looking like, again, a Babe Ruth bar or a smooth Snickers bar anything that's closer to hard, lumpy rock milk duds is constipation. Anything that reminds you of chocolate oatmeal or hot cocoa, that is diarrhea. So I know I've ruined so many wonderful treats for so many people right now, but you have to take a look at your stool and be able to describe it to your gastroenterologist.
0: Well, you bring up a good point as well, in terms of saying that having a bowel movement may be one to three times per day versus like every third day is normal because I do have somebody in my family who doesn't go that often. She's like, well, my GI doctor said it's normal. And I just like looked at her like, that doesn't seem normal, but I guess it
1: is. It can be normal, but if that's not what she's quote unquote normally had usually, and there's a change in the frequency, It might be because, again, there's a change in the gut microbiome or there may have been a change in something in her life, whether it was a traumatic event, whether it was a surgery, whether it was an antibiotic, something may have caused for the change in the overall lining of the bacteria in her gut that has changed the frequency of her stool. Sometimes serotonin, one of the biggest mood hormones that's out there control how your gut moves, right? Too much serotonin and you're having diarrhea, not enough serotonin and you're having constipation. So a lot of times when you see a lot of the drugs that are out there for constipation and diarrhea are actually modulating those serotonin receptors in your gut. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought serotonin was only for depressed people. Well, turns out serotonin not only modulates your mood in depression, but also is associated with how the gut moves. So having enough serotonin will get you out of that constipated state and get you feeling happier as well. Sometimes people are like, when I got depressed or when I stopped working out, this is what happened. I became constipated. Yep. They're all related. They probably went down on the amount of serotonin that their gut had that slowed down their gut motility And the low amount of serotonin then affected their mood. And then it became a vicious cycle. That's how it works.
0: And color, does the color of your bowel movements matter? Because sometimes I know it can be like greenish yellow versus like dark brown to light brown, et cetera.
1: Sure. So color matters to some degree. Okay. So if it's black or tarry, that's a problem because that can mean that you're having bleeding somewhere likely more in the upper parts of the GI tract because it means that blood is escaping. It's getting digested and then coming out. Bright red blood is also a problem, which means that you're losing actual blood from somewhere likely in the lower areas of the GI tract, maybe in the colon. And so those two, you want to try to avoid. Obviously, brown poop is a good thing, but sometimes you may see greener poops and that's okay as well. There's really not That much to do about it. And again, where does the color of stool come from? Is broken down by red blood cells. It's stercobilin. It's the actual color pigment that comes down from the breakdown of red blood cells. Right. That's what does it. Eurobilin is what gives color to your pee, and stercobilin gives color to your poop. And so disorders where that pigment is getting blocked can actually cause for your poop to not have that poopy brown color. So let's say if your liver ducts are blocked, sometimes that stercobilin is not able to escape out of the liver ducts. And so you end up having this grayish white stool and that can be problemsome. So if you see that, you see a grayish white stool, you should definitely talk to a gastroenterologist because it could mean that you may have a blockage somewhere in your bile ducts or somewhere in your liver. And that could be a problem as well if you're having a lot of dark black tarry stool, if you're not on an iron supplementation or you're not taking Pepto-Bismol on a regular basis, it could mean that you're having bleeding somewhere in your upper tract and maybe it's from an ulcer and that needs to be looked at. Or if you're having red blood, that could mean that the lining of your colon is actually inflamed and it's shedding blood. And so that's causing the stool to be bloody as well. So these are all worrisome things, but if it's brown, greenish brown, that's the norm. And hemorrhoids too can cause bleeding. Oh absolutely. Hemorrhoids can most definitely cause bleeding. Hemorrhoids people always think that it's got to be like this big juicy thing that's sticking out of their bottom where they can feel it, push it back in. It doesn't have to be that pronounced. Sometimes internal hemorrhoids, which is above something called a dentate line, that's where your nerves are located in your bottom. When it's inside that, you don't actually feel them, okay? They just feel like pressure. The time that you feel hemorrhoids is when they're lower down. It's below that nerve line. Those are called external hemorrhoids. And they can be itchy. They can be painful. They can be bloody. They can be bothersome, right? And so you may actually even have internal hemorrhoids and not even know it until you start straining a ton when you're pooping, and then these could actually then pop out or protrude out. And so talk to your gastroenterologist. They can do a digital rectal exam and feel for them and see how you can prevent these from popping out. And again, a high fiber diet will help keep you from straining, which will then help prevent these hemorrhoids from popping out.
0: And something that a lot of people, I guess, don't know is 70 to 80% of your immunity actually does live in your gut. Oh,
1: absolutely. And with people having increasing amounts of depression, anxiety, not being able to interact with others, that has changed overall how the brain is giving signals to the gut in terms of how it should move and perform, right? Alternatively, people are staying at home and are saying, you know what, I'm not going to exercise. Or they're eating junkier things because they're saying, okay, you know what, I'm depressed. I'm going to treat myself or I'm going to reward myself by eating whatever junk food that they want to. And it's not going to be high in fiber. And that's actually decreasing what we call short chain fatty acids. Okay, And short chain fatty acids are the primary things that are needed for gut health. They actually modulate anti-inflammation. They actually modulate how we metabolize fat, how we metabolize sugar and how we even regulate expression of those. And they even produce a lot of vitamins, like vitamin K, biotin, pyridoxine, thiamine. A lot of these vitamins are produced by gut bacteria. And how are these gut bacteria fed? By prebiotics and fiber. Fiber feeds these bacteria. And so having a junk diet that is high in animal proteins and does not have enough plants in them, has been seen a lot more during this pandemic. People are staying at home and they're saying, you know what, if I can't go to In-N-Out Burger, I'm just going to have it ordered here. Or I'm not going to exercise because I don't feel like I can go outside right now because I'm quarantined or whatever else. And that in itself is also leading to a lower amount of good gut bacteria. So there's been a lot of changes. And once people are getting sicker, this is also changing. I know you practice in California and so you can
0: only see California patients, but where can Correct. people find more information about you? Cause I know you educate as well on Instagram and other places. Yes.
1: Yeah, so if you are in Southern California, I'm always seeing new patients. People can see me through the Providence St. Jude and St. Joseph Heritage Healthcare. Look me up and call our offices for an appointment. You can also find me on Instagram at gut underscore motility. That's G U T underscore M-O-T-I-L-I-T-Y, or type in my name and you should be able to find me. So I'm trying to go and provide consumable information so that people understand the complexities of the gut and gut health and also provide other inspirational topics as well.
0: That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your knowledge on such an important, important topic. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Well Balanced 360 podcast. I'm truly grateful for all of you and excited to have you join me on this health and wellness journey. Please be sure to stay connected with me over at drshivaniamine.com or any of my social media platforms. If you found this episode to be helpful, I would truly appreciate it if you would also hit that subscribe button and make sure to tell all your friends so you don't miss any future episodes. I'll catch you next week.